Is the Voting Rights Act effectively dead as a super statute? Is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act the best way to protect minority voters in the United States? Are the dangers of election subversion and voter suppression more closely linked than some have said? On Season 3, Episode 3 of the ELB Podcast, we talk to Guy Charles, the Charles Ogletree Jr. Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and Faculty Director of HLS's Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice. Welcome to the ALB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. On today's program, we take a 30,000-foot view of race and election law in the United States. I'm joined by Guy Charles, an expert in constitutional law, election law, campaign finance, redistricting politics and race. He recently joined the Harvard Law faculty as the inaugural Charles J. Ogletree Jr. Professor of Law, and he also serves as faculty director of HLS's Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Guy. It is my pleasure, Rick. So I thought it'd be useful to have a discussion. I've had people on talking about specific issues like Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and how it's going to be interpreted in a case like Brnovich or uh, talking about bringing racial gerrymandering cases. But I wanted to take a 30,000-foot level look at race and election law in the contemporary United States. And I thought there'd be no one better than you to have that discussion. And uh, I was thinking back to an article you wrote a few years ago now with your frequent co-author, Luis Fuentes Rauer, called uh, something like VRA Death of a Super Statute. Mm -hmm. And just kind of the changing nature of um, the Supreme Court's consideration of race in the United States. And so I thought maybe start off for a few minutes and just kind of tell us what that argument is and where you think we stand now, especially since uh, you've written that very important piece. Sure. Thank you, Rick. So as you know, and, and your sophisticated listeners know, uh, the Voting Rights Act has long been regarded um, as uh, probably um, the best thing that Congress has ever done. So um, many commentators describe it as the crown jewel of the civil rights movement and something to that effect. Um, so from a legislative achievement, there are very few statutes. Um, the VRA is among the, the uh, most cherished of, of our statutes. And many commentators, myself included, and along with Louise, have described it as a super statute. Um, a statute that uh, seems to have powerful force beyond um, the the terms and the words of the statute themselves and the statute itself, in large part because of the subject matter that it is dealing with. It, it is essentially fulfilling the goals of the 15th Amendment and the 14th Amendment. So in 1965, you could think of Congress saying, okay, finally, we can bring uh, folks of color, especially black people, within the political community by assuring the right to vote, especially in the South, where it was being blatantly violated since the end of Reconstruction. Um, and so here you have then a very iconic statute. And for almost 50 years, the VRA dominated the landscape. Um, but, you know, but starting in the Northwest Austin Utility District case uh, versus Holder, 
um, it became relatively clear that the approach that the court took to interpreting the, the Voting Rights Act, uh, so when it first interpreted the Voting Rights Act, it gave Congress a lot of leeway in, uh, in interpreting the statute. And really, you could think of the court as partnering up with Congress um, in order to help the statute to fulfill its broad mission. But starting in the Mudno, and then later very clearly in Shelby County versus Holder in 2013, um, it seems that the court um, has moved away from its partnership role and became much more skeptical of the statute. So even within the Mudno, many of us were looking and saying, okay, the court's posture to the VRA has changed, and we might need to think about a different model of um, thinking through race and representation. Um, and so we went from what we regarded as a super statute to at least an ordinary statute, a super statute in which the court was going to give Congress the benefit of the doubt, um, a statute in which the court was going to fill in the significant gaps uh, to assure voting equality, to one in which in 2013, as a fairly good example of the court then limiting the ability of Congress to achieve the aims of the statute by striking down one of its most important provisions, section four of the statute, and then sidelining the preclearance. Um, and so the article then was um, a first attempt to say the world has changed. Our outlook towards the VRA ought to change and that we need a different model. And since then, I think the core point of the article has actually been made even stronger, that it's fairly clear that the court has shipped away at the Voting Rights Act bit by bit with the most recent uh, chipping away is the Bronovich case um, that narrowed the uh, an approach to Section Two with respect to right to vote claims. You know, so I think um, you know I don't want to say that that we, we were prescient. I mean, I think we were looking at at what the court was doing with a realistic set of eyes and calling then for a different way of thinking through because it was clear that the writing was on the wall. So it's clear from just reading the Supreme Court's recent cases involving the Voting Rights Act, I'm thinking not just of Shelby County and Mudno and Brnovich, but also cases like Abbott versus Perez, uh, where the court is interpreting the act, or even the racial gerrymandering cases like Cooper versus Harris, where interpretation of the act comes in along the way as the court does its racial gerrymandering analysis, uh, that something fundamental has changed at the Supreme Court. To what do you attribute that change? And what does that say about either the nature of partisan polarization or the nature of how uh, uh, the legal community thinks about race today in the United States? Sure. Well, clearly we have seen partisan polarization over the VRA at all institutional levels that we did not see before. Um, so we can attribute this partly to the rise of partisanship across uh, domains of American institutions and representative institutions. You could think of the court in this way as a representative institution. So when the court first addressed the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act um, in South Carolina versus Katzenbach, you could think of it as a 9-0 case. Um, you know, Justice Black 
concurred um, and dissented on Section 5, and really his argument was that it ought to be applied nationwide. But fundamentally, the court as an institution supported uh, the VRA, and it and the statute was originally passed, and then portions of it um, renewed by overwhelming bipartisan majorities, even as recently as 2006. Um, so, uh, you know, so for the most part, you had a statute that enjoyed um, bipartisan support. Um, now, in the last few years, what you've seen is a rise in polarization that tracks our partisan polarization uh, with respect to the statute. And the question simply, is that simply a function of the world that, that we live in? Um, and I think that's definitely partly true. But the other aspect of it, and you've written about this, so I think you called this the Bull Connor is dead problem. The other aspect of it is that conservatives, both in the political process as well as in the court, um, no longer believe in the core mission of the Voting Rights Act because they viewed that what Luis and I have called big racism, that the type of um, racial inequality that gave rise to the statute is no longer compelling. It, is no, it no longer exists. It's no longer present. Uh, and so this is not, to put it in the words of John Roberts, where he, he talked about it and um, and uh, the Shelby County Holder case, the, the, we're no longer in 1965 uh, and that the world has changed, right? So um, so we can attribute the, the, the dissensus around the VRA to partisan polarization. Um, we can also attribute it to a lack of faith from conservatives with respect to the core aims of the VRA. And one might also think that that lack of faith uh, coincides with um, what some people might view as partisan self-interest, that perhaps it's now easy to strike out at the VRA because to the extent that the Voting Rights Act protects the rights of voters of color, a significant percentage of whom vote for the Democratic Party, um, then uh, the, that, that partisanship around the VRA is a, is a reflection of partisan self-interest. Yeah, I want to delve a little deeper into this race or party question. When you have, in a place like North Carolina, 90% of um, African-American voters voting for the Democratic Party, 60-something to 70% of white voters voting for the Republican Party, it becomes kind of odd to have a separation between um, thinking about considerations of race and considerations of political party, at least in the United States South, uh, and maybe uh, in other places as well. Um, and yet the Supreme Court's doctrine, for example, uh, its racial gerrymandering doctrine, says that it's unconstitutional to make race the predominant factor in redistricting without a compelling interest. And one defense you can make is, no, it's partisan um, gerrymandering that we're doing, not racial gerrymandering. So you had the really odd situation of David Lewis of the uh, North Carolina General Assembly uh, after their last redistricting was found to have been a racial gerrymander to say, uh, you know, this is about a political party and we are trying to maximize the number of Republican seats. We're trying to achieve partisan gain. I mean, what do you make just, uh, again, I'm not speaking as a matter of doctrine, but just like thinking about this uh, as an observer of uh, how we talk about race in the United States. What do you make of this construct that the Supreme Court has put forward uh, trying to separate race and political party? 
Yeah, that construct does not make any sense, and it has never made sense. Um, so this is not to deny that um, this country has long struggled with racial bigotry as an independent, important, and fundamental phenomenon that has, um, in many ways, um, structured and defined our um, our democracy and our politics. Right. So that aspect of it is true. It is also true that um, race and politics have long been intertwined. I've been spending some time lately with um, Morgan Kauser's work, uh, and one of the important points that he makes is how uh, racial discrimination at the turn, at the end of the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, was intertwined with partisanship, because even, even then we saw um, the relationship between race and political identity, that a lot of the black, newly freed black voters in the South were at that time Republicans. Um, and the Democrats were attempting both to suppress political opposition um, and also to suppress black political power um, and, and the exercise of, of the right to vote by black men, right? So even then we saw a relationship between race and politics and partisanship and racism. And so to have a jurisprudence that is not reflective of the underlying politics on the ground that tries to parse out what is race and what is partisanship means that you won't be able to protect racial inequality. And this is a, a core point in the book that Luis and I are writing on the Voting Rights Act. You cannot protect racial inequality. You can't guard against racism in the political process if you aren't um, protecting the right to vote much more broadly or if you aren't uh, guarding against political inequality. Those two things are intertwined and it makes no sense to have a jurisprudence that tries to parse them out. Well, that leads me to my next question, which is um, the ball being in Congress's court. In the Shelby County case, uh, John Roberts goes out of his way to say, we're not striking down preclearance. We're only striking down the coverage formula and, you know, we'll leave for another day whether or not a new coverage formula could be um, created. And, and Justice Ginsburg in her dissent urges Congress to act. In Brnovich, uh, the court, I think, mangles uh, what Section 2 was meant to mean in the vote denial context. Um, but implicit in that is that Congress could come back and the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act, at least the most recent version would undo Brnovich, would uh, come up with a new coverage formula. Do you think that these approaches are a fruitful way of addressing this? Do you think that um, there is a better way to address this? And, and what do you think the courts are going to do if something like the John Lewis Act passes? Um, my easy answer to your last question is, I think um, the court's hostility to the voting rights Act approach um, is not a function of 
um, the 1965 structure or how we understand Section 2. I think it's a, it, it doesn't like the using race as a mechanism of regulating political power. Uh, I think that's the fundamental hostility. So I think then if, um, you know, and I'll address for the moment the probability of the John Lewis Act getting through Congress. So I think that model um, will run into the same set of problems that um, the previous model ran into. Uh, So I don't think this is simply the fact that Congress didn't um, update the formula. The court, from from a question of constitutional theory um, and constitutional interpretation, the court's analysis in Shelby County does not make any sense whatsoever. Uh, It is not compelling as, as doctrine. Um, right, so I don't think doctrine then will play a role, or constitutional theory interpretation will play a role, and the court will say, "Oh yes, we asked you to update it. You did update it, and now now we're going to defer." Um, right, so I think we're going to run into the same set of problems. What we've what we've been seeing from the court's interpretation of Voting Rights Act cases um, is significant hostility, and I don't think that's going to change. Um, then the, there's a question of, right, what's the likelihood? Um, well, this is that's not necessarily my area of expertise, but you and I have been watching um, Congress struggling. We have a fifty. You know, Senate that's 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 divided. Uh, we have Senator Joe Manchin, who, even though he said that he likes um, what's in the John Lewis Act, we have a filibuster. Um, the the possibility of getting this through, and since Shelby County in 2013, right, so almost 10 years, Congress has been um, uh, at least the Democrats have have called for and have attempted on the House side. Um, to address this problem, I am not optimistic that we're going to see a legislative resolution anytime soon. Um, and then there's the question of even if we did see a legislative resolution, even if you could get it through the Supreme Court, is that is it the right approach? So the logic of the 65 Voting Rights Act is that we knew which geographic locations Um, the racial problems were coming from, and we also knew what their tools were, primarily literacy tasks. Um, The problem that we have now and, you know, approaching the the second, full second decade of of the 21st century is that the voting problems Um, are not predictable on the basis of geography. Um, They're also not predictable on the basis of the the way they manifest themselves. So, you know, we could be dealing with voter IDs, we could be dealing with um, other types of voting suppression mechanisms, we could be dealing with subversion problems, um, and we have this deep political polarization and, and partisanship. And so the geographic targeting mechanism and preclearance mechanism um, has limited utility in a world in which um, voting problems can come from any uh, geographic locations. They could manifest themselves in many different ways. And what we're dealing with is a partisan asymmetrical approach to thinking about the right to vote. Um, and so if that's a problem, then, um, then the VRA framework um, can be useful, but it won't deal with most of the sets of issues that we have to deal with in the 21st century. 
There are some parts of the John Lewis Act that are nationwide, nationwide preclearance for voter ID laws, for example. That responds to the objection that, you know, we can't single out particular parts of the country. Um, but, you know, alternative approach would be something that is much more race neutral. And I'm wondering um, if you think race neutral right to vote protection legislation, it would be a more effective way uh, than race conscious legislation to protect the rights of minority voters in the current United States, either as a matter of theoretically it's a better way to go or as a, a practical matter that it's more likely to pass through the Supreme Court's <laughs> veto gate potential of this kind of legislation. As a practical matter, certainly, with, without a doubt, and as a theoretical matter, um, reasonable minds can differ. Um, in my view, we know, for example, that um, lowering barriers to political participation, like same-day registration, automatic registration, those types of barrier-lowering devices have significant uh, benefits for voters of color and for other types of voters who may have difficulty accessing the political process. Um, and we know that other types of, right, sort of like things that make it harder to vote, right? We, you know, if you have a strict voter ID, you know, now the empirical literature is a bit mixed here, but the, but the, the empirical literature that's focused on um, how strict the voter ID is and how difficult it is to obtain has found um, some effects to show that they, it, that strict voter IDs have an impact on voters of color. So we know then that lowering barriers make it easier for voters of color, raising barriers make it harder for voters of color. Uh, and so one of the things that we can do, and you see this in an approach like, you know, For the People Act or Freedom to Vote Act, um, is to concentrate on what we believe are best practices. Um, and best practices in voting, making it easier for everyone, certainly has significant effects for voters of color as well. So from a practical perspective, that is getting through the Supreme Court's veto gate, um, it seems that universal approaches are certainly useful. But from a theoretical perspective, I think the case can be made there as well, that if you want to protect voters of color, then um, mechanisms that just that, that make it harder, that appear to be race neutral, because they're, whether they're race neutral or not, they're going to have a differential racial impact, right? So if you want to deal with the differential racial impact, um, then universal approaches, um, and maybe some that are targeted to be responsive to, to, to particular needs of vulnerable communities, certainly um, will have uh, beneficial effects. So I want to turn finally to um, an issue that uh, you recently discussed at a conference that uh, I put on at UC Irvine's Fair Elections and Free Speech Center. The, the conference was on election subversion, uh, the concern that election officials or others might manipulate the outcome of elections uh, so that the results don't fairly reflect the will of the people. Um, and this, of course, uh, has become an issue in light of the revelations surrounding how former President Trump tried to manipulate uh, the electoral college process um, and the counting of electoral college votes uh, in the period after the 2020 election. And I was struck by the pushback in the panel you were on. I've tried to make a differentiation between uh, voter suppression 
telling people you can't give water to voters who are waiting in a long line to vote versus election subversion. And you, you know, you said that the line was not as uh, clearly demarcated as I and others have been describing it. I'm wondering if you could flesh that out more because you only had a, a minute or so to make that point on, on a large panel. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, you and others have done a great job of bringing to the table the distinctive challenges that American democracy face in the, in the current moment um, and point out the ways in which government officials can manipulate the process to undermine um, the integrity of the election. Um, what I wanted to bring to the table as well is the relationship between what people are calling right voter uh, subversion and um, and then what people are calling voter suppression um, and asking whether that distinction is um, drawing that sharp line is sensible right is it is it sensible to say that practices that undermine the right to vote, that make it harder for people to vote, and practices that undermine respect or the integrity of the election are two separate things. And I don't think they are two separate things because what we see is the purpose of what we're calling, the purpose of voter subversion, the purpose of voter suppression are exactly the same. So it's, it's, it's controlling the political process and retaining political power. So when you look at the South and the 1890s and the 1880s, um, they engage in all of the same set of practices. So voter fraud, making it hard for people to vote, placing um, their partisan as, and key positions, both in terms of vote counting and in voter registration, right? All of these devices were used as a way of maintaining political control. And that if what we want to do is to protect the integrity of the political process, if what we want to do is assure voice for all members of our democratic polity, we also have to protect the right to vote and we have to assure that um, voter suppression devices are not being used to undermine the integrity of the political process. It's hard to make the argument to say, hey, let's, let's make sure that vote counting mechanisms are respected, but then also not emphasize voter suppression devices. Both go hand in hand because they are both about controlling political power. And you do that by undermining um, voters when they when they show up at the polls, making it hard for them to vote, as well as um, undermining the vote counting mechanism. And just one last point, notice that a lot of the solution to vote subversion deals with the political process. Right. Um, Congress needs to pass certain laws, uh, for example, or state legislatures need to, to pass certain laws. We need to be, make sure that the Electoral Count Act, right, sort of like one of your solutions, strengthen the Electoral Count Act. Well, we can't um, engage these political process solutions if we're not also effectively protecting the right to vote. Right. So the political process solutions depend upon robust protection of the right to vote that are undermined by voter suppressive efforts. So it's easy to look at both the risk of election subversion and the reality of voter suppression in the United States and be and despair. Uh, and uh, so I thought I'd end by asking if there's any reason for hope uh, that the United States is going to get out of what appears to be a very difficult uh, moment for us right now. 
Well, I'm, I'm generally a hopeful person. So I think um, consistent with that, I um, like to end on a note of optimism. So when you think about where we are as a polity, how seriously we're taking, talking about the right to vote, um, that we're talking about alternative voting mechanisms, that people are talking about constitutional amendments, that we're that we brought out some of the vulnerabilities of our democratic process and they're now on the table. And we are being serious about how to make a multiracial, multi-ethnic democratic process much more representative for all of its people, right? Those were not the types of debates that we were having 40 or 50 years ago. They're not the types of questions that were on the table 100 years ago. It is true that there is a backlash to a democratic process that, that wants to be much more representative. There's no doubt about that. It is true that we see some leaders that are um, demagogues that want to use our differences in order to um, make it harder for us, for people to participate and to gain political power. But at the same time, there is um, strong pushback against it. There's greater awareness and the solutions are toward perfecting our democratic polity. So 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, even 20 years down the road, I think as difficult as this moment is, um, if we get out of it, and I think we will, it will be because we're taking these questions much more seriously, we're perfecting this democracy, we're changing the laws to make it easier for people to vote. So today, right, same-day registration is a reality in ways that it wasn't a long time ago. Um, automatic registration is a reality in ways that it wasn't a long time ago. We've made it easier for ex-felons to have access to the franchise. All of those changes are causing a backlash. Um, however, I think we can get through that backlash. And when we do, then we will have a better democracy that works for all. Gay Charles of Harvard Law School, thank you so much for coming on to the ELB podcast. It is my pleasure, Rick Hassan. The ALB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UC Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ALB podcast is Melody Rowell. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time. Thank you.